This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Greetings one, greetings all. I'm Ray Harkins. You're listening to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I hope you're doing well on this fine afternoon, evening, morning, whatever you're listening to it. So uh, we're here to discuss independent music, right? That's what we do here. We talk to people who are involved in bands, record labels, photographers, artwork people, whatever. As long as you are attached to this beautiful community called punk, hardcore, indie rock, emo, whatever you'd like to label it as, that is what we discuss here. And that is exactly what we are doing today. I'm continuing on the month-long Women in Music Profile Month, April, <laughs> again, for those of you that, that listen to a week-to-week basis, you uh, you know that I was joking around on the last episode that I need to come up with some kitschy uh, name for this uh, month-long focus on amazing women that are involved in independent music, but uh, yeah, I don't have a kitschy name for it, so we'll just call it uh, Women in Music, right? How about we do that? And the guest this week is Ivange Livanos, which I'm probably butchering her last name because that's what I have a tendency to do on here because I never <clears throat> speak these people's names out loud, at least their last names. So anyways, but Ivange is a good friend of mine. She, uh, we're technically business partners, uh, cause I work under her, uh, management company called Synergy Management. And, uh, she takes care of bands called uh, Real Friends, Citizen, Super Heaven, uh, nothing nowhere. She's taken care of a lot of bands for many, many years uh, from a management perspective. She worked as a booking agent. That's actually where I first ran across her some, you know, 10 to 15 years ago in, uh, the early two thousands. And, uh, I knew she'd be a great chat because, uh, she lives and breathes music. You know, she's a, uh, a, a grown ass woman. She's an adult now, you know, maybe she doesn't go to 200 plus shows a year, which frankly, if you're going to 200 plus shows a year, you need to be on tour, but she is uh, committed to the cause and committing to working with bands to make sure that they get their name out there and are well taken care of and all that good stuff. So anyways, but I, I, I got two, two plugs that I want to get out of the way and not out of the way because I don't want to talk about them, but get them in your ear holes immediately because they're both, Really, really exciting things. One, so the intro music, as you probably have gathered, has been playing now for, you know, close to a year, and I tend to maybe switch these things out from time to time, but I'm going to let this intro music and all the other music that gets played in here uh, roll for quite some time. And the reason being is because I feel so passionately about this dude's music and what he does. Lowercase noises. That is what you need to Google. That is what you need to dive into. And he has a new record coming out on May 19th called The Swiss Illness. And you can pre-order it at the website, lowercasenoises.com. He, uh, yeah, just an incredible musician, lives in New Mexico, um, has been creating this for quite some time. And he has a new record coming out. And I've been fortunate enough to help him, you know, get this music out to the masses. And I'm very excited to be working alongside of him. And it's awesome because uh, I just love helping people release good music. And that's exactly what we're doing. So please check it out. If you're a fan of bands like Psyche Roast or Stars of the Lid or Explosions in the Sky, anything that you could kind of define as ambient or post-rock or whatever, you will uh, you will definitely like this record. So please go check out lowercasenoises.com and you will be able to uh, find some beautiful music that you can put in your ears. And speaking of beautiful music, so I, I'm going to let you in on a secret. Um, the Descendants are the best band of all time. And uh, if you don't agree with me, uh, you're wrong. I'm just going to go ahead and say that you're wrong. 
no, but all joking aside, Descendants are a uh, incredible band and they are like I, they're one of my favorite bands of all time. And so when they came to me with the notion of promoting Everything Sucks the re-release on vinyl, I was like, um, a- absolutely, please. So here's a secret: you, the listener of 100 Words or Less, are are get some exclusive colorways of vinyl and it's it's white vinyl it's beautiful i've seen it so go to kingsroadmerch.com slash 100 words that's the number 100 w-o-r-d-s and it's only available to very very limited customers so if you like vinyl and you like descendants and you do not have everything sucks holy shit please go there immediately and it's been remastered and remixed by bill stevenson and jason livermore and there's a limited edition vinyl pressing of seven inch of two rare tracks from that session so please go to kingsroadmerch.com slash 100 words and you'll you'll be thanking me because you'll get this beautiful piece of vinyl and it's it's only available to the listeners of this show so please go there check it out and uh there's only 500 of these things out there so just do it okay anyways like i said Ivange is on the show and I'm excited to have her, and that's what we're going to do right now. So here's our discussion with Yvonne and Synergy Management, and here we go. I usually set these things off with my, you know, kind of personal entry points of, you know, you and what you uh, have done musically from the uh, behind the scenes perspective. Okay. So it's like, I mean, my first encounter with you and like we didn't work uh, heavily together, but I just was aware of your existence was the, uh, you know, Arms of Orion. And like when I was working at Abacus Recordings, like myself and my friend Joey, who I know you were, I think Joey, you were communicating with a little bit regularly. Mm-hmm. I don't know, regardless, but it was just one of those things where it's just like, oh, Yvonne Feta, like, you know, she's, she's helping the band out. And like, at that time it was like, you know, most of my job was just like trying to find agents for all the bands that we had because they were all like, you know, mid-level to baby bands. Um, and it was, it it was one of those things where label were they even on Abacus, which was a division of Century Media. Oh boy. Yeah. I mean, but, but it's funny because they, Arms of Ryan never even actually, I mean, they signed, but they never even really put out a record on Abacus. Yeah. I feel like. God, that was a long time ago. Oh, I barely ancient history. remember it. Oh, I, yeah, I don't blame you. The only reason I remember it was is like just, a blip. Oh, it totally was. I mean, it, Abacus existed from like 2002 to 2005 or something like that. And it was basically, it was just like we got an advance from our distributor to put out like, you know, punk hardcore ish records that wow. didn't fit the mold of Century Media. And that's why Arms of Ryan came in because it was like, oh, yeah, it's like, you know, kind of Coheed Cambria ish, like cool. But anyway, wow. but. The, the reason I bring that up is because the uh, I felt like you the you know what Feta was doing was very emblematic of that particular time. Where yeah. It was like there was no one that really knew how to book bands of that ilk. Right. And so people like I imagine like people flocked to try to like work with you guys of a, of a variety of different levels just because it was like. Well, no one knows how to do this, but like, oh, there's like, there's, there's like four agencies. There's like, you know, there's a, you talk to Matt Pike, <laughs> you talk to, you talk to Feta and like you, you, if you're large enough, you maybe talk to Flower. Um, do you reflect on those times as being like, you know, pretty, I guess, exciting because there was so much kind of activity around you guys, or was it just kind of like a, a real grind? I, it was a grind. <laughs> okay. I think when I look back on it now, 
it feel it's the coolest point of my life. Yeah. Because it doesn't exist now. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're a band, you have a manager, you have, a, you have everything before you were born, like as a band. Right. And so back in the day, nobody was booked by the agency group, William Morris, CA, nobody, unless you were Nirvana on major labels. The indie label didn't have that agency to go to. So it was, when I think back, it was us, it was Stormy Shepard. Yes, It right. was Matt yeah. Galley, Matt Pike, Mike Marquis, mm-hmm. and it was Andrew Ellis. True. As indies. Yep. And that was it. And so if you, like, we had a lot of bands. And when I think about that time of, like, going to shows in Philly and the vibe of those shows and going to the church, and that was, like, our stomping grounds, and going to Trocadero, and that was our stomping grounds. Right. It was just different than now. The vibe was exciting and cool. And I can't even, like, when t- people talk about emo night and all that stuff, it, I'm kind of, like, awesome. But, like, you don't understand what it was like. Right. It felt like in that room every day. And, but it was a grind. It, it wasn't exciting. I never felt like we were killing it because right. we would get fired a lot. Sure, sure. <laughs> and we didn't, I mean, I didn't have hardly any money. I was working two other jobs to do it. Right. So what, what were the two other jobs that you were doing? I was a, a cocktail waitress, a tattooed mom's on South street. Okay. Um, Oh, well, I totally, re- uh, yeah. I remember that place. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I only got that job because the owner of the bar lived across the street from me and Eva. Okay. And, um, the, my cat got really sick one day and I had to go to the emergency room uh-huh. and he was coming out as I was going in and I was crying like, Oh my God, oh, I'm going to pay for this. And the next day I had a job offer. <laughs> and what's funny is that you can't get a job there. Like it's one of those things like you could put in your resume all day. They don't care. Oh, they don't care. Yeah. But Robert knew me and he's right. awesome. Hi Robert. And he <laughs> gave me a job. And so I worked there and I worked at the Gap on South Street. Oh, sure. As well. You, yeah, you were just, you were coming South Street. I was a South, South Street. Street girl. That's amazing. Yeah, I got hookups at every coffee shop and restaurants there at one point. I but. loved, I, I mean, that area was, because when, when Take It would tour, we had a friend that, that lived like, I don't know, like two or three blocks from South Street. So we would, you know, go to Repo Records and, you know, the Relapse Records yep. store and all that stuff. Um, but it was, so, it, that that particular street is so interesting because you have such a hodgepodge of, I mean, obviously stores, everything from like, you know, an arts and crafts store to an adult store to Tower Records and like everything else in between. But then that was obviously such a haven for uh, college students. So you had your weirdo art freaks and your college students. Yeah. And it was, it. I'm sure it provided hours of entertainment. It was crazy, especially when Fat Tuesdays would like have their fat oh, Tuesday sure. and you would just be like, you'd see everybody from like born and bred in Philly, like at fat Tuesday spilling out drunk into the streets. <laughs> and then there's all these like pro skaters and thrasher kids and punk rock dudes and music people pouring out of tattooed mom's wasted. It was just really <laughs> funny to walk home and watch that. <laughs> yeah, that was nuts. That's funny. And I, I, I was struck too by the agency just because it, it was, uh, it was cool to have, you know, two females that yeah. were, you know, leading this thing. Um, just because it was so, um, you know, I, I think especially once speaking from a male's perspective, once I started to go to shows when I was like, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old and started to realize it's just like, oh, like there's no girls here. Like there's no, you know, whatever. It's like a 90 percent, 10 percent split. And then once I started to, you know, work in the music industry and started to recognize that that was also very indicative of, you know, maybe it was an 85, 15 percent split. Mm-hmm. Um and then anytime I encountered where it was like, oh, like the, you know, and I don't mean to overgeneralize, but the sort of the positions in which it is a female's touch is more uh, beneficial 
as far as just like, you know, whatever I'm going to stereotype, just like, you know, the motherly, uh, you know, calming presence, like that sort of stuff was really interesting to see, you know, from a PR perspective and then also from like booking agents. And I, I just always found that to be so, um, interesting and inspiring in many ways. Like, did you feel that that was like, uh, was kind of hardwired in your DNA to be like, I mean, the, the sort of team mom that, that you, you know, frankly play still to this day. Yeah. Um, well, I went to school to be an elementary education teacher so my degree is in K through six certification. Okay. And before I got in the music industry, I taught fourth grade. Oh, And prior okay. to that, I worked from senior year high school till I graduated college in a daycare um, that was government funded. So it was a lot of rough kids and, and, sure. and problems that I had to solve. And I've been puked on. Um, I mean, you name it, I've, I've had it happen to me. Right. So I think having that experience and having go through teaching children. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when I got into the music industry and I realized like this job's rad and this is a lot of fun and I don't want to have the white picket fence and a husband and children. I don't want to have children. I think that was always been the reason why I have so much patience for my bands mm -hmm. because that's, that's the patience that would have been for my kin right. that I decided to not have. Right. So it just, I think that's probably why, if you see me or think that I'm more motherly than like a dude manager, right. that's why, because I, my, my love, my first love in life has always been working with kids and, and teaching them the right ways of doing things and making sure they're not assholes. Right. Which is hard to do sometimes. I of can't, course. I can't rewire somebody that comes from another person. <laughs> right. But my bands, I think for the most part are some of the most respectful dudes I've, I've ever met. Yeah. But like, I don't mean to be motherly or anything of the sort. It's just like when I see somebody in distress, I need to fix it. And I want them to feel good about things because I know how scary it was when I first started in the music industry. And I can only imagine what it's like being on a stage. I got to hide behind a phone and email. Right. But to just have to be like, have some anxiety issues and then get thrown on a stage, that's got to be tough. And so I like to make sure things are comfortable Right. For my artists, as comfortable as they can be in this weird business. Yeah, yeah. I always, I, I, I always find it um, cool to hear the direct correlation between education and music because so many, so, I mean, so many people that you know have played in bands that you know get off the road, like end up becoming teachers because yeah. in so many respects, it's v v very similar to what you're talking about, where it's just like, you know, lead singer of a band is getting up there, you know, proselytizing to the crowd, talking about, you know, how they need to be a better person or whatever. Like there's a million different ways that that can happen, but the sort of comfort, the comfortability level of a person getting in front of other people and being like, oh, hey, this is how this, you know, like I, I can take care of you. I can, you know, offer you advice. I can show you, I can you can learn from my bad experiences or whatever. Um, I just find it so interesting when those, when that core is already there with the person, that's funny. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I never knew that this was going to be a job. Right. It wasn't taught to you in college. No, like absolutely you, you're not. You're a woman and you can then go in the music industry and earn money doing these, these trade jobs in the business that, that nobody said that the manager and agent, that wasn't a thing you got taught in school. No, it just, so I thought I was just going to get married at 20, right. um, 21, stay in Scranton, PA, uh -huh. uh, teach fourth grade at the same elementary school I went to with some of the teachers still there. And that was going to be my life. Right. That was the path. Yeah. And once you start, well, uh, I'll, I'll, 
pull a string on that in a little bit, but the, um, it's like once you, uh, when did you start to get, I guess, kind of injected into independent music? Like, was that something that was introduced to you through siblings, through peers? How did that kind of come into your life? Well, my dad owned a diner in Scranton, PA, because we're Greek and that's what you do. Sure. And uh, <laughs> my dad employed the hardcore scene of Scranton, PA. Because <laughs> these freaks couldn't get regular jobs. That's true. They have tattoos, they have piercings, and Scranton's a small town. Right. So my dad had them as like the dishwashers and the cooks. And I was um, dating a linebacker on the football team in high school. Right. And the short order cook with long hair and tattoos in my dad's kitchen had a crush on me. Oh, nice. And so <laughs> my the linebacker and I dated who and he was kind of a dick to me mm. and the sensitive, you know, kind of Artist straggly type. guy in the kitchen that I never looked at twice passed me out and he was in a band and he was in a local Scranton band that would open for bands at a venue called CC's in music. Okay. So the first time I ever went to a show, because like my first concert was like Tori Amos, no, 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 Vanilla Ice, Marky Mark, <laughs> oh. Tori Amos. It wasn't like this. What a bill. I know. A tour, I, no, I not like, at tour, the same time. Oh, I was, no, gonna, no. I was, like, I was like, wait a minute. That's, that's, that is, <laughs> I was like, I've, I've heard of tours. That is not a tour that I've heard of. Amazing. <laughs> um, so I went to like regular venue shows. Sure. Like Kirby concerts. Center, concerts. Totally. That's all I knew. Right. And so then I, I met this guy and I dated him and he opened me up to kind of the hardcore scene. Uh-huh. So I would go to all these shows at CC's and just watch these kids dance. We'd go to home base in Wilkes-Barre. Shows right. were three and five dollars. And um, that's kind of what got me into it and it, it opened my eyes to like a whole world of like, wait a minute, you don't have to, like I used to wear tons of makeup. I used to uh-huh. like really get all girled up. Right. And then when I started going to these hardcore shows, I was like, wait, Girls are like comfortable here and it's normal and I don't need to be all like bedazzled out. Like right. this is rad. I love this. You're not judged by anything. It's a real safe environment and it feels very accepting no matter what. And so I dug it and I just jumped in full force and I got super, super into it. So at age like, what is it, 15 or so, mm-hmm. um, I started going to shows there and I was always raised on pop and hip hop because I was a dancer since I was four. Okay. And I quit in my early 20s. So that was always been like a, a separate guilty pleasure love. But that's all I knew. Yeah, of so course. getting this underground love, like, oh, my God. Like, when I first heard quicksand, my brain was exploding inside my body. When I heard Tool's Opiate, yeah. that was a long time ago. But they're not even a hardcore band. But no, that but still. Yeah, blew yeah. my mind. Right. And just... You know, discovering that and doing my own research was, you know, pretty much it for me. And I was just addicted to the feeling I had at those shows. Right. Yeah, you have it. I mean, I find it interesting because like the uh, you I think you described it well, where it's like you, you know, you you find that you have an appetite for something Mm -hmm. like you. You weren't even sure you were searching for it. But then once it shows itself to you, that's when you're just like. I got to scratch that itch. Like yeah. I got to find out more about that. Like I got to be involved somehow, like some way. And then you just start to, yeah, you just start to like uncover rocks and you're just like, Oh wow. Like there's a lot, a lot of cool bands underneath that rock. And yeah. I wasn't aware of before, but I find it interesting that you, that, um, you know, partially probably due to just like your exposure where it's like, most girls do feel the, uh, you know, the societal pressure to be this one thing, mm-hmm. you know, and fit this, this ar- archetype or stereotype. And then to have that your head cracked open to be like, oh, like I don't have to do that at all. Yeah. How 
how did that start to like once you started to dive into that how did that sit with your your parents were they kind of like oh what is what is Yvonne into like this is weird <laughs> like how did that transpire with them well um I started shopping at the Salvation Army right because grunge was in of course and I was all grunge. about it right I cut my hair short like the singer of the cranberries I had hair down in my butt and I wanted oh, I just that, cut it off that must have freaked your parents out well my mom didn't care. My mom's awesome. Okay. My dad's an immigrant from Greece, very judgmental. And um, he still tells me to this day to get a real job. So Yeah, because he, he owns a diner. That's something very practical. Yeah. His daughter does something something with music. Yeah. He probably has like a 4% understanding of what you do. I don't even know if that. Like it doesn't under, like because he's like, it just it's nuts. So I wore big big pants and tight shirts and I'd cinch the pants like like corduroys and like totally old old lady sweaters and it I look disgusting I look at pictures and I'm like ugh and I think my mom just you know my mom was always a very accepting woman uh-huh. like my idol growing up was Cindy Lauper and in okay. fourth grade I went dressed as her for Halloween and I decided I liked it so much I just decided to wear that outfit for three days straight after keeping the yellow and orange and red in my hair my of mom course. let me. My dad, on the other hand, used to tell me I looked like a farmer. He would make fun of the way I looked. He said I, I looked scrubby. That right. was my nickname growing up. And oh, so my, my old coworker calls calls me scrubby still to this day. Sure. Um, because I looked dirty. Right. But I think they were kind of like, what's going on? And just thought it was a phase. But once I got into college and I was still very much into it, mm-hmm. and even though I was going to college for school, there was I was so ingrained in like the grunge scene and music and like even in high school Pearl Jam was like the shit. Absolutely. But prior to that, um, learning out like finding bands on Equal Vision back 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 in the day and finding a band called Shift. Of course. I loved that band and going to see Shelter and Glassjaw when they played like two hundred cap rooms and yeah, yeah. like that was something that my mom didn't she was scared of my safety she was scared that there's druggies because they've got long hair and tattoos yeah of course and i was like raised by an immigrant father and a mom that never left scranton pennsylvania right very conservative sure the world the worldview is 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 tiny from very tiny and i'm the oldest i got my tongue pierced at one point my dad didn't let me talk to him for two weeks because he could see it in my mouth Right. Yeah. Yeah. You were you were blazing the trail that your your siblings were just like, wow. I'm glad that she's getting in all this. Like yeah. She, she's testing the waters. I made their life very easy. They they should get me better Christmas presents. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I always it's always funny when you see the uh, you know the oldest sibling you know veering off in one direction, and then the younger siblings are just like, oh, so I, I I'm not gonna like, or they follow complete suit, and then the parents are just like, now I got to deal with like yeah. two or three kids. With this. <laughs> so wild. I don't know to deal with this <laughs> i was still a good kid though like still home by curfew right never drank till i was 21 never tried drugs like i was never like i wasn't a bad kid i just liked hanging around with bad kids sure or kids that looked bad i mean some of my friends were doing drugs but i i yeah, did yeah, it. Yeah. i didn't know what it looked like my boyfriend that got me into the music industry was well not in the music industry but into the scene right um was popping pill like drinking and and smoking weed and i didn't know what that looked like so he'd come over after band practice Uh and eat all the shit in my freezer that i could barely afford as it is like veggie burgers were a treat (laughs) totally and he'd just eat them all and i'm like why the hell is he so hungry poor guy he just probably didn't eat he probably practiced real hard (laughs) (laughs) but no he was doing bad things and i didn't know because i don't know what those signs are because i was just a good kid that just loved being in this world yeah and i was nobody nobody knew who i was and my 
guy friends were the ones in the local bands that opened up for like a, a touring band that would come through because they could pull a couple hundred kids themselves. Right. So I would just go as like their friend at yeah, the show. Yeah, totally. Or just their chick friend yeah, at the show. You're part of the scene. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> the, uh, I always like it too when you do figure out that, you know, as long as you, you, you tow the line from a kid perspective where it's like, like you mentioned, you're, you're getting, you know, reasonable grades and you're, you know, showing up by curfew. Like I, I always never understood my friends that like didn't do those things and were into the same stuff as me. I was just like, you're making your life so much harder. Yeah. Like just like follow some of those rules and then like, yeah, you'll be able to like go to a show like just do that. Like right. I don't understand that <laughs> how people just made their lives that difficult. Yeah. But then uh, so like you like you mentioned, you were you know, you were you were OK at school and you were on a trajectory from a education standpoint. Um, and so, and you, you, when did you actually move to Philly? Did you go to school in Philly? No, I graduated okay. college in Scranton. Okay. Um, got my bachelor's. I got, I was all ready to go. My parents got me a job. Oh, okay. They pulled strings. It was hard to get a job as a teacher back then. Now they can't give those jobs away fast oh, enough. But back then it was hard to get a job in that district. It was Scranton School District. Mm-hmm. And I liked teaching, but I didn't like the school district. I didn't like the public school system. Okay. And I felt it was a jip to kids. I felt that teachers are just literally like cruising in, looking at the teacher edition, saying what it exactly tells you to say, and that's your lesson for the day. These kids aren't learning. Right. They weren't challenged. They're being talked to. Yeah. Yeah. And I am not a learner from what I hear. I don't work that way. So mm-hmm. it just used to piss me off. So yeah. I, I was like, you know, I don't know what I want to do. So I graduated college. Apparently, my dad pulled strings from the diner because the mayor or whatever used to come in and get his Texas wieners. My dad right, of course. About yeah. his He's like, I know everybody, right? So, apparently, my parents got me a job. And I was working at a tanning salon after school, right next to my dad's diner. And my apartment was next to my dad's diner. Like, I couldn't have not explored more. Right. And um, my friend Eva from Feta Booking, who mm-hmm. owns Feta Booking, and I became friends because we have the same first name. We're both Greek, and our names are Evangelia. Yeah. It's a I, common name in Greece. I know. That was also another thing that I found. So, like, at a moment, I definitely was like, are they the same person? Like, Everybody I, used to think I, that. I, <laughs> She's Eva Feta. I was Evange Feta. Right. There's, there's a G in there. It's different. Right. But um, a lot of people still to this day Sure. Do like, that. you're the same person. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but she and I became friends because my... One of my guy friends that was in a band in um, Wilkes-Barre, she used to live in Wilkes-Barre. He was like, you got to meet my friend Eva. She has your name. And I was like, get out of here. Nobody has my name. Right. And she used to put on shows at a place called the Praying Mantis or something in in Wilkes-Barre, Hazleton area. And um, that's how she met Hot Water. And she and I started talking. We became friends. And we just started talking when I graduated college. I had web TV that was back in the day the internet system I had absolutely and it connected to your phone system and it was dial up and it was a keyboard on your lap and I used to just kind of like email with her right and she and I were talking and I was like listen I don't know what I want to do but I don't think I want to stay here I think I want to move and because my boyfriend and I had broken up he cheated on me it was the whole thing sure so sure I was like I'm out of here the world was open right yeah, yeah. so she's like why don't you come to Philly I have a spare bedroom you can see if you like it and I'm like, all right. So I came up for the weekend. She lived with the drummer of Ink and Dagger at the oh. time. He was on the second floor. She was on the third floor. And it was a railroad bedroom. You'd have to walk through my bedroom to get to, to hers. Get to- <laughs> and I was like, all right. And I hung out for the weekend. I was like, this is fucking awesome. Right. I'm going to I'm gonna do this. I'm going to move. Okay. Um, and I decided to move. And I moved in with Eva. 
And I just worked my Gap on South Street job because I was working at retail. Um, I worked at Hot Topic as well in Scranton. Okay. At some point in my senior year of college, I worked at, I was like assistant manager of the Scranton store that I opened up. So if you ever go to the Scranton, Pennsylvania Hot Topic, yours truly put up that t-shirt wall and it fucking sucked. I <laughs> it took and all then, day. And then you're like, now full circle, some of my band shirts are sold on it's that wall. It's just funny with that. So, you know, I had retail experience when I worked. They just transferred me to the Gap and I, I worked there and... Um, Eva was going on vacation and she was like, hey, do you think you can help me get some like holds? I forget what tour she was doing. And I was like, sure. I needed to get holds. I needed to get ticket counts. I needed to get contracts back. Mm-hmm. Fax style. Of course. Yeah, right. yeah. No email. No. no. No way. So um, I did. She left for like a month to go to Greece and I handled all of her shit. She came back and she was like, whoa, wow. You want to help out down here? And I was like, yeah, sure. So our her office was in the basement of our Trinity House in South Philly, mm-hmm. and it was carpeted, and it was her, Christine Beaton. Christine did Saves the Day and a couple of small brown bike, I think. Okay. And Eva did Hot Water and whatnot. And so she gave me a band called Kind of Like Spinning. They hated me. Sure. I didn't do a good job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. You didn't know what you're doing, right. I was trying, but I just could not satisfy him yeah. to save his life. Right. He did not want the like $100 a night tours that that was only thing available to him at the time. Totally. I don't even know if he remembers me. He probably does because I don't think he liked me very much. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of how it started was just like I didn't fuck up what she needed me to do. Right. And that would yeah, I just go into work every day. Sure. Um, down in the basement and we'd get to work and I would help her with all of her paperwork and stuff and I worked for free. I want to say for about two years. Okay. I got nothing. Yeah, yeah. Just, it was a side hustle. I was. I got to go to shows with her and meet all these bands and have a great time. And right. Not. I, I just worked Gap. I worked at Tattooed Moms, and that's kind of what. Sure. Uh, my. Your existence yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Well, I mean that that. So many people, you know, and I'm sure you get this question, you know, 900 times a day when you interact with people are just like, hey, like, I, I would love to, like, get a job in the music industry. And it's like there no matter <laughs> any person that's r- risen to any s- semblance of a uh, level that it's like, oh, I would like that job. And then you're just like, how am I supposed like the blueprint you just laid out? It's just like, oh, yeah. So like yeah. get get an education degree, but don't use it. And like, it's like. <laughs> How, how is that even like a reasonable piece of advice? I know. No, it, it, you can't. My story is very different than many others and, and will forever be different because I'm sure people my age, my peer group kind of started that same way. You right. fall into it because you have a friend or a homie or something and you didn't go to college for it. Now there's all these dumb programs that try to teach you how to be a manager. Oh, and there's no man. fucking way that works. Yeah. And some of my staff went to, to school and got degrees in that. Yeah, shout out to Zach. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Zach. Yeah. I told him one, at one point, just give me all your money. I'm, I'm teaching you more than you're learning there. Just give it totally. to me. Just give me your yearly. Yeah. I got you. And so, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it started very organically because the internet didn't exist then. There weren't 50 million bands. Right. There weren't tons. Like the indie labels had like maybe two or three bands. Totally. It was never a time like it is now with like so many fucking bands and some jerk off is their manager. Who's, oh, yeah. I like, went to their was, friendager. Like, their friendager or fanager. And everything <laughs> they do is great now. And it's like back then, bands did not have managers. Yeah. They did not have managers until they got massive. And it, and it was also the, like not to get too old man on the porch, but it was very much like a 
you you viewed managers through the lens of like I got to be very careful about yeah. this. Like I told I I I can you bringing bringing that up just jarred a memory where I was like I remember Tim Smith emailed Taken to be like hey like you guys are friends with Atreyu I take care of Atreyu like are you guys looking for management and I straight up told him no I was just like no like I was like why do we need a manager like that doesn't make any fucking sense and it was and this was like you know two thousand like even yeah. at that time was still like you need to view managers like. They're, they're gonna like it's like they're gonna like Svengali you and be like this like puppet master and like I won't have any decisions yeah and it's like it, no. you know that was just a naive way of thinking but it like was. but at that time it was kind of you know that was like part and parcel where it's like it was scary. oh scary totally it was very scary to do that so it, it was just a different time where it was a, a cool community back then of all the independent agents like I talked we talked to Gally like so much a day right because we all had our bands on the same tours and ellis's tours were what we lived and died by right we needed that midtown tour when saves the day fired us they went to andrew of course and we needed like all of those tours were very important and crucial to our career you know and eva had a really hot roster she always did you know she had pretty girls make graves at one point she had hot water yeah but like we were a cool community that doesn't exist now. The independents now get crushed. I'm an independent, and if somebody that manages Metallica goes after the same metal band that I go after, I'm not getting that band. Totally. And it's just bands are so opportunistic now. Right. They want the bigger dick, the the shinier coin. Of course. Versus the person. The larger promises. Yeah. Sure. Which mm-hmm. and which cool. I, you know, every band has their own thing, but it's so hard to get ahead now where back then, like I started, I knew nobody. I had zero relationships. All yeah. I knew was Eva. Right. And I'm, and my idiot friends in Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, who ended up not talking to me ever again when I moved to Philly, never talked to me again. What, I was be, still, I was leaving because them. You betray- I wow. betrayed them. I left them because they thought I was leaving Scranton to go uh, work with Eva so I could sleep with band boys. Of course. Yes. Right. Because like, that's why. That, that's what women do. That's, well, that's what you're still in the game for. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm hoping some 20-year-old with no money and I can hit yeah. it off. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Just just start this start this relationship. <laughs> I like Wow, that's that's amazing. They, they that totally that, shunned me. It was like a really sad. Like, I drove to Philly crying. They were supposed to show up to help me move. I know I'm getting off on a tangent. But no, that's... It was the day of moving. Yeah, yeah. I had the coolest furniture from the Salvation Army. It was before vintage shit was cool. Right, right. I had the coolest shit. Right. And they were supposed to help me move. And my boyfriend at the time had like a pickup truck. Yep. And he, but he had a broken leg. So my dude friends never showed up that day, like on purpose. Just like just, to send a message. They showed up as we were leaving and smiled and were like, "What are you guys doing?" Like to be dicks. Yeah. So then a couple of years later, they emailed me to help me get their band signed to Victory or something. Because back then, I was like close with Victory. Right. And I told them I wouldn't because not because I was spiteful. I didn't think it was good enough, and I had a track record with Victory. Like I sent them bands that right. they signed. Right. And I didn't want to send them something that I didn't believe in because if they, I don't want them to. I didn't want to water down my of my email power. Right, I was right, right. Just getting started. <laughs> totally. So somebody was thinking I had something going on here, so I right. wanted to make sure that I kept that. Wow. So then, then I was. Um, I thought I was too cool for them, and now we don't even speak. Yeah. So like, I don't even right. you know, talk Those, to them. Now. Yeah. People in your distant past. Wow, yeah. That's so. That's... But they helped me get started absolutely and you know but the story now like i hear these kids all the time they want to intern here they want to get their foot in the door and it is difficult yeah it is real hard and if unless you find a band that just kind of happens and you're managing them and you're holding on their coattails the only way you can truly get hired at a 
at a company that'll pay attention to you. There's there's people think like, oh, I'll go work there and I could pay my bills. There's no fucking money in yeah, there. Yeah, good luck. If right. If you don't have a band that makes money, how do I pay you? Exactly. I'm just gonna pull it out of my ass. Right. Totally. Because you're nice. Like, that's not. That's not life. Okay. Because you're I, working hard, right? Yeah. I think they think the industry is like this, like cloud of fun, and it sucks. It's really hard to work in this business. It's really hard to pay your bills. Sure. And I back in the day. You, the cost of living wasn't as bad. I was in Philly. It was easy. Totally. My rent was, what was it, 250 a month? Right, right. Yeah, your, your overhead is very low. Very right. low. So if I made 500 bucks that month, I'm psyched. I got $250. <laughs> I got left. two months worth of rent. Yeah. yeah. Like it was just simpler times because I was also 22, 23 years old. Like Absolutely. I didn't, I didn't need much. Right, now right. I'm 40. I need a fucking lot. Right, right. And so it's just different. Like I feel bad for the kids nowadays who are trying to go to school to learn how to do this. Mm-hmm. No book will ever teach you what to do when your drummer has been up for three days because he's on every drug known to man. They're on tour with 30 Seconds to Mars, and he's telling you that he's not going to get to the next venue. What do you do? Right. Let's look this up in chapter yeah, four. Fill in the circles. It doesn't exist. No. So no. it's 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 just I feel bad for nowadays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kids to start in this. Uh, totally. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's a much more crowded marketplace. Yeah. The um, was there ever a notion that you wanted to actually like play in a band? Never. No, no, I can't no, play no desire. in my life. Man, still. I played I, violin in school. Oh, okay. Um, I was more of a dancer. I was a performer. Right. I wanted to do that professionally. When I was 16, I would like do competitions, and I was really good at tap. Real good at it. Killed Just it. like fucking right. loud, loud. Uh, right. yeah. Oh, surprise, surprise. I'm good at something <laughs> loud. Right. Um, I was really good at it. They put me when I was like nine in a class with 16-year-olds. Like it was, I thought that's what I was going to be, like a dancer. And then mm-hmm. I was like, man, this sucks. I didn't like the competitiveness of it. Oh, yeah. Um, it sucked. So I never wanted to be Yeah, never, never had a desire to Mm-mm. do that. Hey, I want to interrupt this podcast to tell you about another amazing podcast that is part of the Jabberjaw Network because they have a ton of shows over there. So visit JabberjawMedia.com and you can find out about this show and many others. This show is called Poor Taste. So I'll admit this isn't targeted to me, the straight edge person. But if you enjoy alcohol, cocktails, cocktails in particular, this show is absolutely for you. So John and Lindsay Yeager are people who have a ton of experience with hotels, restaurants, and bars, and are bringing their cocktail and spirit prowess to the Poor Taste podcast. Each week, they discuss spirit and cocktail history while also guiding guests through recipes. The Poor Taste podcast. You like a poor? I don't know why I did that, but the Poor Taste podcast also features award-winning authors, spirit importers, and taste makers. Oh, that may be them calling right now on the other line. No, not really, but... They, uh, yeah, they basically bring people on who know what they're talking about to discuss trends and the industry as a whole. So, please, if you enjoy alcohol and the spirits, then uh, you will definitely like the Portes podcast. So, check it out, jabberjobmedia.com, and find a bunch of other shows. So, here we go. And I mean, I, the only reason I ask is because, you know, usually people like they might gravitate towards that idea. And then, like you, you said, usually people are just like, oh, I, like, I can't even play anything. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Not a chance. No and then way. usually, but then usually you would end up being the singer if you can't play anything. True, I can't <laughs> sing either. The um, and so then once once you started to develop your music industry chops by you know doing doing stuff at Feda and obviously getting relationships and like you said started to um, you know foster respect from people within the industry. Um, was it, uh, were you, you were completely smitten about that, right? As far as like the industry was concerned or was it just kind of like, well, this is just still a fun thing to do 
I, I want to transition into something bigger or how, where was your headspace at? Oh, it was, I was in, Okay, I was <laughs> all in. I, um, worked for Eva for like a few months or so. And the guy I was dating, um, that I was crazy about at the time moved to Minneapolis and I followed him and I quit booking for a minute. I was okay. like, all right, I'm done. I'm going to just go be a wife to this guy because I love him. I'm right. young. And I moved to Minneapolis, coldest place on planet earth. Most yes. beautiful summer I've ever spent anywhere, but real cold. <laughs> um, he got a job working for his brother's company, but he had dabbled in the music industry. Um, he like tour managed or sold merch for like Saves the Day or Midtown or something. Oh, okay. Um, while I was in Minneapolis, his regular job he thought was too boring, so he wanted to get back on the road. Eva did him a favor because they were friends, right? And she got him a job tour managing Midtown, and on that tour. He decided he was confused on life. Now, we were engaged, by the way. Ooh, okay. Um, and he needed to figure his life out and was not coming home. So oh, wow. I'm 20. I've never been out of, like, Philly or Scranton. Like, Philly was the farthest I've been out right. of Scranton. I've been to New York twice as a kid. I'm in fucking Minneapolis. Yeah, I'm by I, myself. Right. I don't know anybody except the people. Oh, and I'm working at Banana Republic. Sure. Because I'm good with retail. Of course. Like I had the experience and I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do? <laughs> yeah. I don't know anybody here. And I can't like, I don't even know the cheap grocery store where you get the, you get the eggs here and you, you go to this <laughs> one and get your organic shit. Like I don't even have that luxury. I was lost. So right. I was there for about eight months. And uh, I remember calling Eva and telling her what happened. And she's like, get, get here. We'll figure it out. Right. So I drove across country with my two cats in the back seat for 23 hours straight with printed out <laughs> Map quest because there was no GPS and no cell phone. Nope. So if I got lost, I'm lost. Right. right. You're going to a seven eleven using a payphone. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I got back to Philly. I think I was twenty two, twenty two years old at the time. And just I was on my way to turn twenty three. Mm-hmm. And Eva waited for me on the doorstep with my favorite falafel sandwich from B-Tars. Oh, man. And uh, she had a roommate staying in my room and moved her to the basement, put me up there. <laughs> the chick wanted to be in the basement. It was fine. Yeah. And that's what, <laughs> you know, and that's when I was like, you know what, fuck dudes, fuck relationships. Yeah. I'm going all in at this. Right. And um, I would be up late till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning doing ticket counts, sending out emails. Right. You know, I was doing work, right. People were responding late at night. I was on IM. People were sending me bands to listen to on IM. Like, I went hard. Right. And I was not going to stop until I knew that I, I could I could feel satisfied with where I was at. Uh-huh. I'm still not because I'm just one of those people where of I course, never yeah, feel yeah. satisfied. But I pushed hard. I right. didn't. I remember like... I didn't kiss a boy for two years. Like I was so like, get the fuck away from me. I am sure I have, I've learned I need, I need to focus on this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it. And I, I just, I hated men at the time. I was like, I'm done. Right. Fuck these guys. Sure. And, um, I was just, I was determined to make work. this fucking work. Right. Right. What, uh, do you have any anecdotal memories of, uh, I guess like victories during that, that those early times where, or not the early times, but then when you returned, um, of when you felt like you had some momentum, whether it was like you said, helping getting a band, getting a band signed to victory or, you know, booking a successful headlining tour. Like, do you have any sort of anecdotal memories that you were just like, it it can be something even smaller than that where it was just like, Oh, I remember that thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember when I was booking small brown bikes, I got small brown bikes because Christine left. Okay. And um, I got them I got them on Warp Tour. It was $250 a show. Kevin Huge. emailed me back. And Lisa, or Eva and Kevin were close. Uh-huh. So when she was like, hey, Yvonne's just going to email. Like, she kind of set it up to yeah, email yeah, yeah, for yeah, me. T- right. And I emailed him, and he gave me the, an offer. He even responded to me, and I was like, wow. 
that was cool. And then yeah. I remember when um, I found this band called Count the Stars, mm-hmm. and they sent me their demo, and I was like, this is good, and I sent it to Victory. Like I do when I felt, because back then, this was before we knew Tony was like right. crazy. Sure. So um, I really worked well with them. Yeah. And I sent him the stuff and I kind of went on my merry way and just started doing my thing. And I get a call a month later from the drummer, Dave Shapiro. Right. And uh, he said, hey, Yvonne, just Dave. Uh, remember me from Count the Stars? I was like, yeah, what's up, dude? And he goes, so uh, we got signed to Victory and we want you to be our agent. And I was like, what? What? Because at this time, I'm working for bands that like had no label or just had no value. Because right. I got the remnant bands at, at Feta. It was Nick Storch was there at the time. He had Coheed. He had Hope's Fall. Right. Eva had tons of hot bands I had sure. remnant shit I was booking plain white tees for five fucking years and they made a hundred dollars a night right like yeah yeah this is Look, what many years before hey Delilah many many years before that <laughs> so when that happened I was like cool and then Count the Stars and Fall Out Boy were teed up to be at the same exact level uh-huh. they did a co-bill together sure they released their record and they were neck and neck every week and I was like this is my money maker right this I is hitting this is this. hitting right and then the band got in a car accident on a Saturday and broke up the right. very next day because they hated each other right so. and then use that as an excuse and then right? Dave Shapiro went on to become the Booking agent he is today, making millions of dollars more than me yeah. I could ever imagine, and I gave him his Rolodex. So yeah, yeah. you're welcome, Dave. There you go. <laughs> built, built on the backs of giants, right? Yeah. <laughs> the um, and so then, yeah, as you as you kept getting deeper and deeper, and like you said, just you know, focusing all your energy on it. Um, there, uh, you know, did did the notion of uh, management come into your head around that time, or was that something that just kind of transpired later? It. Never did until it just fell in my lap. Okay. Because I was booking a band named Emmanuel. They were called Emmanuel Nice. And they would send me weird love letters in the mail and emails like to fuck with me. Okay. And I'd be like, who the fuck is this guy? And they thought that they were timing it at the same time they sent me their their demo. They oh. thought I would get it along with those emails and put the two and two together. But little do they know that shit sits in a corner for like about a, a month or two. Yeah, we'd, absolutely. We'd, we'd make our interns listen to it. So one night, somebody IMs me and goes, you should listen to this band. They send me this link, and it's a manual. Mm-hmm. And um, Gabe from Midtown, I guess, was managing them or helping them or something of the sort. And I listened, and I was like, holy shit, this band is good. Right. So I reached out to them, and they had wanted us to book them. They wanted Feta to book them all along. So they were like, yes, finally. Thank God. And so um, they didn't have a label. So as a booking agent who doesn't have a label you Mm -hmm. it behooves you to get this band signed otherwise your job sucks you can't get the money (laughs) nobody's marketing the band and it's tough so um i started talking to labels and they had offers like from everyone but prior to that bob mcclin from crush management managed the producer machine okay and he's like and he liked the manual too because gabe's supporter told him Made about a it connection there yeah. and um he was like you know we should do a spec deal i was like oh the fuck a spec deal is i'll pretend i know what it is. <laughs> yeah, i'm like googling <laughs> whatever and um he tells me kind of how it is and basically you do the deal for free and pretend whatever they get signed for that producer gets a sliding scale paid of sure. money right and so bob kind of God bless him, impatiently kind of guided me through this. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what I was doing. This record was incredible. Mm -hmm. It was incredible. And I had a finished record to shop to labels. Which is great. And that was his idea. Yeah. And um, then I 
did that, and all these labels loved the band. I remember they were in New York. They talked to, like, I can't remember if it was, like, TVT or something. Uh-huh. Fueled by Ramen wanted them. And we were walking down the street because they had just played at Knitting Factory. And we run into Matt Pinfield. And I think he's with Gabe or something. And they're like, he's like, come in the office tomorrow. I want you to showcase for the label. And they, like, showcased for Columbia. Oh, yeah, Like, yeah. They, they loaded in their gear in this weird-ass <laughs> elevator, and they played it in this weird office. Of course. And this it's... is, like, a little hick band from Louisville, Kentucky. Kentucky, right, right. That were just the funnest kids I've ever known. And um, and that was it. And then Vagrant flew us to L.A. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I've ever been to L.A. in my whole life. Oh, it's amazing. <gasps> And I, it was on Sunset Boulevard, where right. my old office used to be now. Yep. And um, they, we went to Vagrant, and it was like a really, the best meeting we ever had, because it wasn't sterile. It was like the whole staff making fun of each other, because Rich Egan and Wayne Pagini back in the day were just wise asses, and they make fun of Dan Gill, and it was yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, And we were like these scared kids. I was a scared kid. I was 25, 26. Sure. I'm trying to pretend like I know what I'm doing, because I don't want to lose this band or have them fire me. So I'm trying to act all like I know what I, right. I'm confident, but I'm scared as shit. Like, I don't know what's going on. Right. And they ordered a Baja Fresh, and they just laid it in the conference room. It wasn't like some weird, stiff meeting, and right. it was a hang. And the band was like, that's it. We're done. We want them. And we got offered a deal from Fueled by Ramen that was richer. And hindsight 2020, I don't know what would have happened if we signed FBR. Sometimes I wonder that every day because I think John Janik was brilliant with sure. that label. But it was it was when their biggest band was Cadillac Blindside. Right. They didn't even have Fall Out Boy. No. Yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, um, we signed a Vagrant. Yeah. And then the band asked me if I'd manage them. And I was like, but I don't know how to manage I'll fuck this up. And they were like, we don't care. We trust you. Yeah, yeah. They had bigger managers that wanted them, but they didn't trust them. They were scared. Right. I felt comfortable. I felt attainable. And they knew I was, I had a lot of drives. So I'll, I'll figure it out. Right. You fought and you, plus you fostered that, that relationship and you had, cause the thing, the thing I find so interesting too, is a lot of people, you know, put the cart in front of the horse and they're yeah. like, you know, they're going to like talk to a band and be like, all right, here's our one page deal memo of you can sign it. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you were just like, you were like, oh, that's not happening. And so then like, once it came to the, the point where they're just like, oh yeah, we, we trust Yvonne. Like yeah. why, why would we work with anybody else? I'm sure there are people that look at that or the way I do nowadays too, when there's like a really young manager in place with a band that's on fire. Yeah. I'm sure they were like, oh God, they have that fucking kid managing them. Like right. I'm sure oh, yeah. that word happened I'm a lot. Sure. I'm like, oh, she doesn't know what the fuck she's doing. Oh, yeah. I was such, uh, I'm sure I drove Wayne crazy because I was so like, I that was your I, that was your world. That was it. Emmanuel was my and I was booking still, but I was managing Emmanuel, and I just thought you had to be a bitch to get people to fear you, to listen to you, uh-huh. because otherwise they would see that I didn't know what I was doing. Right. So right. I was like extra harsh. Why don't we have more records sold and like banging on the table? So kind you, of like thing. you, you it was like posturing. Yes. Yeah. Because I was terrified. Right. I didn't want to lose this band because they were so fucking hot. Yeah. At the time. Jimmy World Tours, they did tours, their fish Taking Back Sunday tours, they did a Midtown tour, the 30 Seconds to Mars tour. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this band was on every hot tour back then right. that you could imagine without any effort. Totally. Like, yeah, people were reaching out to you guys. Yeah. Yeah. And so at that point, I couldn't book and manage them. It was a conflict of interest. Sure. So Tim, did, That doesn't stop many people, though. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But now but that yeah. I think about it, I could have probably made up, because I didn't make any money off of manual at all. I spent money. But yes. still, but then Tim Bohr picked up the band um, when, because we had worked together at Face the Music Touring, because I had left Feta at that point. Right. And then he uh, picked them up. I managed them. 
And then Face the Music Touring got bought by the agency group. Right. I didn't want to be an agent anymore because I think it fucking sucks. Yeah. I hate just being black <clears> and white <throat> numbers. You don't have any control over the band's life. Like, if they get a flat tire to the show, it's not your problem. Fix it. Right. It's not your problem if the singer has anxiety and depression. I like being fully involved with I was going to say, so, like, you, yeah, you felt like, I mean, uh, you know, what you're talking about, especially in the journey with Emmanuel, is that you were so highly involved. So, like, you... You felt that in you yeah. that you you were like I, I don't want to be my involvement doesn't just stop here yeah okay so I loved knowing I don't want to have to ask anybody anything I'm a control freak yeah. and when you're an agent and somebody asks you a question you don't know you have to ask the manager or ask the band sure wait three days for a response right. it's annoying <laughs> I just wanted to get shit done and right. clean out my emails so I liked that I had all the answers you the buck stopped with me totally I loved that right not a, not from a power thing. From just an enable thing, like I can get the job done better, quicker, it's right? With me, right? So I liked, I liked that. I was so in love with management. Right. I was so done. I was yeah. done. For, I'm going to be a manager. Sure. So I didn't take my offer. All my friends moved to New York City. I'm stuck in Philly. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to figure out, trying to get hired at a big management company. Right. Because that's your answer as a smaller manager. You go to a big management company, they're going to blow up your band. Of course. No, they don't. No. <laughs> but um, that was what I did for about six months. Like, I still booked my bands, and I still kind of, you know, I pieced, I like kind of peeled them off and gave them to other agents. I was still working for Face the Music Touring, which was owned by Radio Takeover. Right. And when they went bankrupt because of the whole Hellfest thing, oh, yeah. that was a whole disaster. And I know this is very vague because not everybody knows what we're talking about, but our company went under because of that. That was brutal. He spent our money. Yeah. So, that was like, what, 2004? Yeah, I moved to New York in 2006, so it was probably 2005. 2005, yeah, yeah, I remember that. So that fucked us. Tim went and got everybody offers to protect us because we still had like massive bands at Face to Music. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. And um, huge, a huge agency fracturing like that, like that, that doesn't happen, right? So then, yeah, they all moved. I stayed and booked my bands, and I lived out my contract with Radio Takeover Face the Music just uh-huh. to kind of get paid because sure. I didn't know what else to do. Totally. Give and, you a little runway, right? And my roommate at the time was Nick Storch, and he was moving to New York. I didn't have a roommate. Yeah. I don't know what I was doing. I needed to find a job. Right. So eventually I did. I got hired at a company in New York, and that's kind of what started official full-time management for me was right. 2006. Got it. I wasn't booking and managing on the side. Yeah, and yeah, I doing retail, whatever, yeah. like doing this hodgepodge of yeah. stuff that like, That yeah. was it. That was the focus. Right. And so then, you know, you, you, you started your own company and, you know, you started to, uh, you know, have some success in varying levels, you know, as you were building your name even further as far as management's concerned. And then, um, you know, once... The, well, two two things I kind of wanted to pull on were, you know, one, the uh, you've always been a huge proponent in regards to, you know, getting more females involved in the music industry um, as far as like, you know, people coming to you advice, like, you know, whether it's like, you know, setting up workshops, whatever, like a lot of people, you know, have looked at you from that perspective and been like, oh, like, you know, you are a successful person within this industry. Um, it had that's, I presume, been something that you noticed from early on in regards to the disparity of, you know, males and females in specifically the music industry space. Um, so what, I guess what motivated you to like be involved further? Cause you know, you could simply just, just do your work and that's like, that's fine. Yeah. But you decided to take more of an active role with that. I don't know if I ever even like consciously meant to. Yeah. I think it was just, I never, I was never like, Oh, I can't get things done because I'm a woman. Like uh-huh. that, 
and I know that's the mindset of a lot of the young girls today. Mm-hmm. Um, I never let that be a factor. Right. I'm just like I would be more of a dude than the dudes when I would hang out with them. Right. Because I didn't want them to have to like treat me different or treat me special. I can curse as yeah. good as any other guy. Right. Um, but I did notice that there was a lack of community of women and that they cut each other down instead of rising each other up. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at a girl, she walks in the room, the girl scans her up and down. Does she have bigger boobs than me? Is she right. hotter than me? Is her hair? But where's right. all that stuff? I don't do that. It, just, right. it doesn't, It's never been my, my MO. I just, I want people, there's a lot of money to go around. There's a lot of success to go around. There's enough for all of us. So, mm-hmm. I think I just worked real hard to be able to run with the boys. Yeah. I'm not trying to like get treated differently or have a, a whole other club over here. But, you know, when it comes to as far as my company now, we have three females in the office um, and we have three males as well. Right. So it's kind of a mix. But my males aren't like your typical like dickhead males. Yeah. They're yeah, yeah. really respectful, wonderfully smart dudes. Right. But, you know, I, I just feel like I'll give you all the power, and then if you fuck it up, that's on you, and that's regardless of Yeah, sex. regardless of gender, right, yeah. exactly, yeah, yeah. No, that's cool. <clears throat> the um, And so then once you, you know, you, because uh, you moved you move to L.A. in what, 2010? No, I can't this? remember. I tried to remember this the other day. I think it was 13. Okay, Because 13. I was in New York for about six and a half, seven years. Mm-hmm. So I moved to New York in 2006. I worked for Good Charlotte's Management firm. Right. That lasted about a year. The company fell apart. Okay. I did not have a job. Um, I was also p- broke as fuck because I was getting paid thirty grand a year and for a, <laughs> in New York City, right? And yeah. I thought that was a lot of money because I'm coming from Philly, right? So I had an apartment in Brooklyn and Greenpoint before Greenpoint was the shit, right? With no bathroom, I had a door and a toilet. I had no bathroom sink. It was like fourth floor walk up. It right. was a whole thing. The G train didn't run like it did now. <laughs> right. It would only run like twice a day. Like, sure, you'd have to book it to get. It was. Stressful. And before that, though, I was commuting every day for three months before I moved to New York. Okay. So I was commuting from Philly to New York every day. Sucked. Yeah. And then I moved there. I'm at this company. It falls apart within a year. And I'm like, what do I do? I'm fucking here and I'm broke. Right. And I mean, I had no food. Like, I would live on spaghetti and hummus. It was very cheap at the bodega at three o'clock in the morning. Right. Spaghetti, peanut butter, sriracha, spicy peanut noodles. Oh, yeah, yeah. style. It was good. <laughs> that was my life. Right. Um, I was very skinny. And then um, I went on my own for a little bit. And then I started working for these guys that were investors in Kevin Lyman's old label called Warcon. Oh, yes, I remember that. They started their own label called Score. And when I was at a fine martini, Good Charlotte's firm at the time, Good Charlotte's not with them anymore. Right. Um, they hired – the reason I got that job is because my boss took a consulting gig from those investor guys to manage bands on the label that they created. Got it. So that's what I did while trying to – get a manual up and going. So then I was there for a year. It didn't, it was sterile. It wasn't a real music industry job. It was like me, these billionaire guys that don't understand music and liked to go out and wear leather pants and feel like they were total rock dream. It was just vanity. So then from there I went and worked at five B artist management. Right. was there for years. And then my contract was up and I didn't want to renew it because this genre of, I don't know what the hell you call it. I found Make Do and Mend, and I thought this band was the shit. Yeah, and yeah. I wanted to get back involved in the scene because the scene died for a long time. It was sure, it, was it a went into metal core, core. Absolutely, it was a Treyu. It was big, big bands. Those bands became big, and all the emo bands, Save City, Midtown, all of that. Yep. died. Emmanuel breaks up. 
They right. wrote a record because they smoked too much weed. They wrote a record that wasn't correct for them. Sure. They recorded with Deftones dude, Terry Day, who also did Alice in Chains. Like, it was a monumental moment for them, and they wrote the wrong record, and nobody gave a fuck. Right. Band couldn't handle it. They broke up. I was devastated. So then I went to work for Hop 5B mm-hmm. for years, and then I was like, you know, I'm going to... I'm going to do my own thing. I, well, in 5B2, just to put in context too, it's like, you know, Slipknot, Trivium. Like, you know, yeah. it could, I mean, it could not be more mainstream metal. Like, right. that's what it was. And I loved that, though, because I was managing a couple bands by myself and that struggle that you have with that $100 a night bullshit, like, mm-hmm. you have to deal with. Like, the drama of the bands and the small problems that are just not even a fucking problem, but they're your problem at that time because it's all you know. Right. It goes away. And you're like, God, I'm never going to struggle like that again. That fucking sucks. This is great. I'm working for massive <laughs> bands. And totally. Anything is possible yep. when you work for a big band. Yep. And I loved it there, but it just, uh, my passion was always with a different genre of music. Right. Um, and probably the build, too. Like, yeah, I mean, I know, like, I know it's a struggle and I know it's a grind, but like there, there are certain, there's something that's so, um, intangible that you can't really describe. Like when you have that, you know, the moment of pride where it's like, if just doing something as simple as like, cool, they sold out a hometown show. Like, yeah. and that's only because we're working this together and we promoted it for three months, whatever, like those things that like, no matter how much, you know, you deal with 90% of crap to the, for that 10% of just like, oh, that's so cool. It is cool. Like you were, I was working for someone else's passion. Right. And it paid well, and I loved it, and I learned so much. Sure. And I think Corey Brennan is probably the best mentor I've ever met in my life. And if it wasn't for him, I would never be able to do my own company. Sure. Because his knowledge and his methods and the way he does things, I I watched and I learned and I took what I wanted to learn and I left what I didn't agree with, and it yeah. was great. But I just I missed being passionate about something that I I chose. Sure. It wasn't just handed to me. Hey, you got to manage this band because whatever. Right. Um, so I think I left 20, 2012. My contract was, yeah, yeah. I moved to LA January 1st, uh, 2013. I got in my car with my three cats and my best friend and we mm-hmm. drove across country for five days. And that was, that was right. it. That was the start of that. Yeah. And the, um, you know, your, your relationship with, with real friends, I mean, that, that's, you know, built the, this company from that perspective. Um, and you know, a lot of, I mean, all of the, the descriptors that you, uh, you know, explained in regards to Emmanuel sound exactly the same as what you had with real friends. And so, um, you know, the, and then a lot of people, you know, from a music industry perspective where it's just like when they see that a band is hot and then there's like a bunch of competition to like, you know, manage or book them and stuff like that. Um, you know, you, 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 you weren't immune to that when you were started working with real friends, but the, you know, I'm sure there was, there was a lot of weirdness happening at the time where people were trying to manage them and you were already taking care of them. Like, you know, how, how is that like, not like you were worried about the band leaving you, but like trying to kind of be like, all right, like, you know, you can talk to these guys or whatever, like, you know, giving the band the space to be able to make the decision to work with you. Um, how did that call transpire? Well, it's funny because their band is such a, such an interesting enigma. There's never a band like them again. Yeah. Um, so I caught wind of them. I was already managing Citizen. Right. At the time, Citizen had young states out. They were being labeled as pop punk. Yep. And I had a laptop set up in my bedroom. Um, at a desk, and that was Synergy Artist Management. Right. And that laptop was given to me by Corey Taylor of Slipknot's wife, Stephanie Taylor, when she knew I was leaving. Um, I quit that Friday was my last day. That Saturday at 8 a.m., I had a knock at the door, and I was hungover, so I was like, fuck. 
and I open the door and it's FedEx and I open it up and it's a laptop with a note that says, take over the world with this, sis. Oh, that's that, so sweet. That started Synergy. Right. That is Synergy Artist Management. So I had a couple <clears throat> of bands at the time. I had Bray, Diamond Youth, Citizen. Yep. Peanut, Jason Parent, <clears throat> says, E, you got to look at this band. you got to manage this band. They're going to be massive. Because I was the only manager Jason knew except for Tim Zahotsky. Okay. And yeah. he sent it to Tim Zahotsky too. And I was like, dude, I can't manage another baby band. I've got Citizen. <laughs> right. It's gonna be, I don't need another pop punk <clears throat> band. Right. I don't want competition for them. And I called Citizen. I go, does this seem like competition to you? And they were like, no, they're different. They're on a different path than us. And I said, all right. So he puts me on the phone with Kyle from the band. Mm-hmm. And Kyle's basically like, hey, I run this band. I pretty much manage the band myself. What can you do that I can't do? Wow. And I was like, I like this kid. <laughs> Yeah, you're like, just throwing it out on the table. And right. so I kind of told him, like, my story of working with massive artists like Slipknot or Wolf Mother, Stone Sour, Black Tide, just independent mm-hmm. companies, like, or big, big bands at this, like, boutique management firm. You learn, you have to do everything for yeah. them. I learned a lot of experience, and I just told him my history of booking and my relationships at that point. I had been around, I don't even know, 50. 15, 16 years, right. something like that. So I know everybody, mm-hmm. and a lot of it's relationships. Of course. You can know your band inside and out. You can be able to order merch and handle your shit on the road greatly, but when it comes time to really network and to have someone at Spotify put you on a playlist, how are you going to do that mm-hmm. in a band? So I had to keep giving them examples, and Spotify didn't exist back then, but, <laughs> but still, things but. like that, I had to kind of tell them, we talked for two months. He put me through the ringer for two months. Wow. He would just be like, hey, do you have time to talk today? And I'd drop whatever I was doing, because I was, didn't have anything going on. I didn't yeah, have yeah. any money. <laughs> sure. I was working out of my bedroom. And I was managing like a recording studio on the side. Like I was doing side gigs yeah, to, to pay hustling. the bills. Sure. At age 35, I'm starting over and I have no <laughs> money. So sad. And um, I just talked to him for two months. And then at one point he goes, all right, I think we're going to move forward with this. And I was like, fucking yes, yeah, finally. Yeah. And um, we used to brainstorm. We get along really well on a creative front. We love brainstorming on the phone. And I'll be like, I have this idea. We should do this and this and this. And he's like, me too. And we just, that's what I think got us together was I was fiercely independent. He's fiercely independent. Mm-hmm. Every label wanted to sign this band. Right. They did their first tour. It sold out. Two fifty three hundred caps. <clears throat> it was Texas to Florida and back. Every show sold out. Right. Labels were starting to pay attention. And I was like, what's the rush? He loved the idea of putting shit out ourselves. He loved the idea of making people wait right. and really being sure of it because they didn't want a label. Mm-hmm. They didn't need, they, yeah, they, they, they already they had this stru- right. They were making lots of money themselves. The mm-hmm. fuck do they need a label for and give up most of that? Totally. You know, and, and then that's what got us good. Just knowing that like they can get, they can carve out whatever the fuck they want with me mm-hmm. and we'll do it together versus a lot of managers are pretty, set in stone kind of sure they, they know how to work the path like they that's do. yeah there is no we thought outside the box all day it was like a really fun time for me that was like really fun the first year of real friends was just like really cool for me because i had no money i was thirty thousand dollars in debt none mm-hmm. of my bands know this but now you know yeah. every time i took you to lunch or dinner i didn't have the money it was on my card <laughs> right <laughs> Sorry, citizen. Right. Um, but I had nothing. I mean, I was broke as shit. And the band, I remember, like, they made, like, I got a couple grand ones after a tour. And I was like, right. what? what? 
this is actually working. Right. Because none of my other bands were making any money. I had Super Heaven at the time, too. And this was when they were still Daylight. They weren't making yeah. any money. Sizz weren't making any money. They were children. They were 17 years old. Totally. And Real Friends were, like, doing some stuff. Right. And so I didn't know if they were talking to other managers. I don't think so. I don't think any other manager would have had the patience to call Kyle right. and convince Hand him. Hold. Right, right, I convinced right. this guy to be like, I, I'm the one. Right. And, you know, four years later... Here we are, yeah, 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 and it's you know we're family now. Like totally. now, it's there's no contract with me and Real Friends. We don't have a contract. Yeah, they can leave whenever the fuck they want. Totally. I hope yeah, they not, don't. Right, right. Knock on wood, but, but yeah. You know they know that I got their backs forever, and whatever they need, we'll do. Right. And whatever weird path they want to take, I'll back it. And without just saying blindly yes, I definitely give my opinion. I definitely speak up when I need to. But yeah, that was just a fun time, and I, I think. I think at that point, I was the only, like, manager on the scene. Like, mm-hmm. a, a lot of the managers in that world were kids still, like, young day-to-days. Or Absolutely. Just, just, I was the first one kind of, I'm 35. You had experience had going into this. I had whole thing yep, behind exactly. me. And I'm managing these bands. Nobody really fucked with me, I don't think, right. at that point. Kyle might have a different story that he's never telling me, but yeah. but no, as but far you, as I know, I don't think they talked to right. any other man. Yeah, they, they weren't they weren't like putting out the lead to like seven other people and like yeah. No, <laughs> that's not Kyle's style at all. <laughs> For sure. Uh, the last thing I want to hit on was the uh, you, you kind of alluded to this in what you were just talking about with real friends, but like you know the uh, the, the process of managing bands, like you said, it runs a litany from you know like you said helping them replace a tire at a gas station or calling AAA like you know two in the morning all the way down to um, you know actually getting pre order numbers in for a particular release and whatever there's so much that happens in between there um i i presume it's probably hard for you to maybe specify which kind of part of the process like gives you the most sort of satisfaction um i mean it sounds like uh, the the creativity like that's understood um but is there uh, are there are there specific things within that sort of creative umbrella that you're just like man i love talking about you know pre-orders or you know leading up to the album release or you know six months after the album release is there a specific i guess time frame that you tend to like more than uh others i love the time frame before there's a label yeah we can do whatever the fuck we want yeah and it usually is really impactful mm-hmm. if the band is some sort of following mm-hmm. um i also love the part of the rollout right before the record's release like knowing you have like a fire album on your hands yeah. and like, talking with the label and planning it out and shooting the video and and brainstorming with the band. Um, I also love when a band's able to headline and talking to a band prior to announcing the tour of all of the things I'd like for them to do mm-hmm. on a marketing level to create a lot of buzz and then brainstorming back and telling me things that they want to do with fans that are really cool that like normally like you have to like beg a band to do, but like <laughs> yeah. they'll do a free meet and greet just cause like that's cool shit. Um, so it's, it's definitely the creative and it's usually like the before something big is going to happen. The right. planning of that. I fucking hate pre-order stuff, the bundles yeah. and figuring that out. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, hate yeah. It. Um, supports boring. Yeah. Um, you know, black Friday record store days, whatever. I love the planning process. Sure. Of kind it. of the anticipation of it. I love it. Yeah. That's what, so much fun. No, that is fun. That's very fun. Um, that, that I promise this is the last thing That's where the, cool. the idea of. 
Because basically, you know, I mean, once people get, I think that I've read this statistical study done, I think it was either last year or the year before by, um, you know, Spotify, where it's like, I think the average age of a person to stop listening to new music is like 32 years old or something like that. Um, Yeah, I know. I mean, which is understandable from a sort of mainstream, like, you know, people just don't have time. Right. Um, But, you know, you've been pot committed for so many years through so many different, um, you know, you've had exposure to so many different music scenes, but, you know, you've always kind of stayed true to the you know independent nature of punk hardcore whatever you want to call it um what still keeps you engaged with that i think it's the fans Mm -hmm. i love watching these kids in the crowd and maybe it's the teacher in me but when i see a little (laughs) girl in the front row crying when dan from real friends is singing i Mm -hmm. tear up and i have to like fan my eyes and and like they make fun of me like if i'm standing next to my agent i'll be like i gotta go i got got the vapors right right um just watching how excited they are to be there and they're, they can't wait to be next in line to talk to my guys. Yeah. Like that's fucking rad. Right. Like these are my guys that I talk to every day. I know the ugly side of them. I know the great side of them. I know the ins and outs. So to me, it's whatever, you know, they stay at my house. Sometimes we give Christmas gifts. Like it's just normal everyday life. Like it is for every manager, but to watch the effects that they have on these kids is just amazing. Mm-hmm. And the world of the indie labels is very maneuverable for me because they're all my friends. Right. People at Hopeless, my friends. People at Rise, my friends. People at Fearless have become my friends. Um, one of my managers, Cody, works at Fearless now. So it's it's my relationships are so strong at these indies that that's kind of where I stay. But we do have a, an artist that's um, signed to... Fueled by Ramen mm-hmm. right now. And that's going to be our first kind of major label artist, if you will. But he's going to be, you know, incubated on in India at first. Right. And so I'm not opposed to going to the, the major label world. I feel like the major label world really wants to work with us mm-hmm. because we are such a hands-on management company. We have our own tour marketing department. We have our own gear and sponsorship department. Um, we do whatever it takes for our artists. And we do a lot of the work where I've noticed just because I'm in my own bubble, I don't notice too much. But other times, a lot of managers leave it all up to the label. Like, we do our own ad mats. I don't have the label do our ad mats. Right. You supply it all. We do it. We do everything you need. And we just say, here. Yeah. And let's collaborate as a team. We're not right. You're not right. But we're, we do all of the heavy lifting. And I know for there's a lot of majors that would love for us to work with their bands. Mm-hmm. But none of them's ever felt right. Um, they were either too cheesy or just too too non genuine, and right. it didn't feel like we would be able to do it justice because it just it definitely takes a certain kind of artist to be at synergy. Oh sure, if you want, you know, everything handed to you at once, and you don't want to work for it, <laughs> right. it's not going to work. If you want your manager to get wasted with you and take you out to a strip club and buy you a steak, that's not me. Mm-hmm. I'm in bed early because I got to be up early and I can't be hungover because I'm working for your band. <laughs> right, right. If you right. want somebody to do that, get a friend. But it's just we have certain types of personalities that work here, and they're usually the go-getters. Like mm-hmm. They're usually the ones that can go handle getting their van registered by themselves. I don't have to figure out how to call like the, the DMV minutia. for that. Yeah, yeah. It's just different. So I think it's a dream for a lot of labels to want to work with us. And for me, it's just we're so dialed into some of these places that it's just a no-brainer. Like when Fearless is a new signing, I pay very close attention to it. I want to. Do I want to work it or not? Mm-hmm. My relationship is so strong there. We have five bands on Fearless now. Yeah, it's nuts. Totally. So they... it, it's and hopeless. We have a couple bands on Rise. We have a couple bands on. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just that's where our relationships are. Right. And right. it's strong and it's easy. 
easy, uh, you know, as easy the relationship, as right? Yeah, you, you're able to plug it in, but not, but not dial it in. You know, yeah. like you're able to be like, hey, like this, this seems like a logical conclusion that we can all come to. You should right. sign this band. You're happy working with us. Let's keep it going. And the same with like APA. We work with APA so closely. They they book most of our bands in America, if not all. Mm-hmm. Between Andrew Ellis, Greg Horble, Brad Wiseman, Jason Parent. Right. They do. Literally all of our bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's kind of this trifecta now where it's almost like, okay, this is the formula. If I do Jason, books it, and it goes to this label, and it sounds like this, mm-hmm. it'll probably do this. Yeah. Um, and I've been trying to mix up the roster a little bit. Like I sure. said, we have we have a, a new artist, um, Nothing Nowhere, who's kind of emo rap. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have Metalcore. I have Sworn In. I have Varials. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have our pop punk bands. We've got sure. Kevin Devine. We've got Sorority Noise. Like We've got all the different genres which is awesome because that means our relationships are growing and that's what i like totally this is uh well i'm very excited for you i mean you you've the the path that you've taken is unconventional but i think that that really spells to the time and place that you obviously came from um but it's just uh yeah it's cool because not you know not many people are, are able to peek behind the curtain so to speak and obviously see how this stuff gets built up and i think that's you know your story is very inspiring thank you very much yes thank you for doing this Yvonne. it's thank been you. fun <laughs> So there you have it. That was Yvonne, and I want to thank her very much for doing the interview because, uh, you know, sometimes people that are behind the scenes in the music industry, they don't really do interviews. And when I come at them being like, hey, we're friends, you can do this. And they're like, I don't know. But Yvonne was uh, very sweet and forthcoming, and I really appreciate that. So thank you very much, Yvonne. And uh, yeah, please check out her management company because they do incredible work. So uh, if you're a band, uh, hopefully do good work to get her to recognize you to manage them, right? (laughs) Oh, yes. Well, anyways, uh, next week on the show is another amazing woman in independent music, and that is Rachel Rosen. She is from uh, Most Precious Blood, and she also played Indecision and The Wage of Sin and has done a lot of cool stuff within and around independent music, most particularly hardcore. And uh, she's also a big pitbull advocate as well. So a lot of cool stuff because I actually go over to her house and we hang out in her backyard while some of her pitbulls are playing around us. Though There will be a lot of <laughs> a lot of barking and uh, I left it in there because it's pretty fun. So anyways, as always, the music is featured on this episode is Lowercase Noises. So like I said, at the top of the show, check out lowercasenoises.com and you can find pre-order information on his record, The Swiss Illness. It's beautiful. Do it up. And um, yeah, there's nothing else I want to tell you other than um, life's good. Spring's good. So uh, let's keep the positivity rolling. And until next week, please be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.